We were just speaking with the new Westminster Mayor, Jonathan Cote, about the TransLink Mayor's Council meeting earlier today. They are calling on federal and provincial funding to help TransLink, uh, to help it stay afloat or not have to make more severe cuts. So we are joined now by Maxime Pednow-Jobin, the Mayor of Gatineau, to take a look at what the Canadian Federation of Municipalities is calling for when it comes to emergency federal funding. Mayor, thank you so much for joining us today. It's a pleasure. Uh, what What is your response to the idea of the, the, the Canadian Federation of Municipalities saying, look, they need, everybody needs emergency federal funding. This is the best way to help municipalities and cities that are missing out on property taxes that are having these financial troubles. It's absolutely uh, essential. Uh, cities across uh, the country are facing a very, very tough financial time. And they are, they are, they should be part of the solution. My, my fear is that they'll be part of the problem if we can't, if they don't receive uh, help uh, to just to balance the, this year's budget. They, they're part of the solution to help people on the ground. They spend more. They see their uh, revenues drop uh, um, uh, extensively. Uh, so we, if we don't get help, we'll, we'll, we'll make things worse by, by firing people and cutting services. And in a, in a, in a financial crisis, that's not what should be done. And what about the idea that before asking for emergency funding or before going down that route, every municipality, every city needs to go back to its budget with a pen and figure out exactly what's essential and exactly what isn't? Uh, we're already doing that, but but we have to remember that the fiscal system for municipalities is is uh, outdated. It was uh, built in the 19th century and we're in the 21st, so Whatever the choices we make, we're stuck with our main revenue being property tax. So if we need money to come in, it's it's through property taxes. Uh, and and if we and if we don't do that, we cut services. While other governments, when things will go get better, the income tax is going to improve. The the uh, the, um, uh, the 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 GST is going to give them money. We will still be stuck with only with mainly one revenue, which is property property tax. So that's why we think that the best solution is is for the other governments to uh, to help us because if we if they don't, we'll have to to make bad decisions, cutting services or increasing property tax during a. Uh, an economic crisis. And what about the idea of, on a federal level, the federal emergency relief benefits, the wage subsidies, the the measures that have already been announced to help Canadians? Would it not work better to make sure Canadians remain or at least to stay in a position where they can pay their property taxes and to keep that money coming into the municipalities and the cities? Yes, and I, that's why one doesn't exclude the, the other uh, I think we have to help directly uh, Canadians, uh, but but cities, as I said, are, are, are part of the solution. We are uh, right now on the ground uh, helping people, helping businesses, uh, getting people together for for economic uh, uh, plans. Uh, and and if we're not doing this and just just cutting the services, I think I don't think we're going to help anybody. Have you figured out, or has there been a request? I know that the that the federal um, the federal body has put together an idea. I think the it was it was a ten to fifteen billion dollar uh, that they would need to, in to to go to the municipalities. What would, what would the formula be? Would it be based on population? Would it be based on if you also have a transit system that comes under the council, or or have we got to that point where we could work out what each what each municipality or city would need? 
It's it's an excellent question, and it's a tricky question. We've uh, we've we started talking about that with the federal government. Uh, the solution we prefer is a, is a mechanism that is like the uh, the gas tax mechanism, where each city knows how much it will get. It's already been negotiated. The mechanism has already been negotiated with all provinces, so we not we don't have to go through that again. Uh, we think that's the best way for for cities to get direct help from the federal government, because we all agree that it's a good mechanism. It it's, it has been tested. Uh, and and uh, all municipalities feel it's fair. Have you had any response at this point to the request or any that you've heard of? Uh, there's a good dialogue. Uh, they know how difficult times are for, for cities. It's hard for me to go further than that. Uh, it's, um, it's very obvious that for public transit, all governments know that we're in, 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 we have a, a huge problem. The revenues have... have um, have gone down uh, $40 million each month for lost transit ridership alone. It's a lot of money. In Gatineau alone, it's, it's $3.6 million we lose every month. Uh, and, and after the crisis, we cannot have a less efficient public transit system. We'll need it because people will have less revenues. They'll, they'll need more public transit, and it has to be efficient uh, for, for, for economic revi- uh, reasons, also for the, for the environment. So, uh, so th- that the, the the response on that issue alone is is positive. Uh, on the other one, the dialogue continues. Uh, but in the past, we've we've gotten help uh, in in housing and infrastructure from the federal government. We're confident that this this partnership with the cities will will continue positively. And are the municipalities, uh, from what you understand, are they looking for bailout money in that it would be gifted money, or would this be a loan? Gifted, because again. If it's a loan, we're, we're stuck with the same fiscal system. We either cut services to pay back that loan or we raise property tax. It, the, the margin of maneuver that cities have is nothing compared to what the provincial or the federal government have. Uh, so that, that's why we're stuck in a place where, where if we just push forward, we'll, instead of taking bad decisions now, we're, we'll take them in the future. So, so we think that, that uh, direct help is, is what's needed. And are you confident, I know we touched on this, are you confident, though, that every uh, municipality, every city has, in fact, gone to its budget? And I'm speaking from uh, Vancouver, uh, where the Vancouver Council uh, has been questioned on this many times, that there are a lot of pet projects in the current budget. There are a lot of things that don't fall under the essential city services lines. So are we confident, though, that all of the cost savings that can be found have been found? Uh, we're still managing the crisis, so of course there's a lot of debate still still to be had. But 10 to 15 billion, I think, is a bare minimum. We we haven't talked uh, about pension plans that could be affected in the retirement plans that could be affected in in, in the future. Uh, so it's I think it's a. What we're asking for is just to face 2020. We haven't talked about 2021. So those debates and those discussions you're referring to, I think, will, will have to be held in every city. Uh, but, but that federal help will, will still be uh, very much needed. And do you, get, you mentioned that the dialogue is continuing. Do you have any sense on when you might get a more firm answer? Uh, no, no. Maybe the president of FCM could answer because he's closer to the negotiations than I am. But uh, but we're speaking to them as we speak. All right. So we will leave it there. Uh, Mayor Pedno Jobin, thank you so much uh, for joining us today. It was good to talk to you.
Thank you very much. Well, as you know, many, many businesses are closed because of COVID-19. Many that can't have any kind of physical distancing or simply can't follow the rules have closed their doors and are waiting until until we get to the point where they can reopen, even if it is with some changes, with some changes made to make sure everybody is staying safe. Well, it's believed that dentistry and chiropractors might be some of the first to return to some form of work. But what exactly would that look like? Joining me on the line to talk a bit more about it is Dr. Alistair Nichol, member of the BC Dentist Association, and he joins me now. Thank you so much for being with us. Good afternoon. Thank you very much for uh, having me on the show. Uh, So what is it looking like as far as dentists and dentist's office then being able to reopen? Well, as you know, the, our provincial health officer, Dr. Bonnie Hendry, uh, in a statement two days ago, uh, made it uh, suggested that some health practitioners will be open, be able to open in a little while. Um, and, and she mentioned uh, mid-May as, as a target date. Of course, uh, that will depend completely on how the epidemiological data unfolds, and it's going to be her decision uh, alone as to when uh, other health uh, health offices can open up. So what it's going to look like, well, the answer to that is it's a bit of a work in progress, and we're not really terribly sure what it is. Both uh, in, in, the, in British Columbia, the BCDA has struck a task force to to um, look at what the return to work will look like for dentists, and the Canadian Dental Association nationally is doing the same thing. So uh, we've begun the process of looking at what it might be like, and there will undoubtedly be some changes, and it's go- and uh, there's going to be some time. We just don't quite know what the new normal is going to look like. Uh, because during this, I would imagine, emergency dental procedures have still been going on, haven't they? Yes, they have. And uh, some of the uh, experiences we've had providing these emergency dental services will do as well to, uh, to try and establish what we, ha- what we can do going forward. You know, if you think about it, there's really two, uh, two areas. One is practicing uh, safe practices in terms of uh, dental offices and business, in terms of patients coming into the offices, safeguarding the patients and safeguarding staff. So that's social distancing, that is, uh, that is uh, perhaps tra- uh, conducting transactions, uh, financial transactions by telephone. That includes things like uh, maybe having perspex barriers uh, for, for the uh, financial administrative transactions at, the, at, the, at the, the front desk. It includes scheduling things in such a way so that we don't have a large number of people in waiting rooms and discouraging people to come in in large groups to try and bring patients in, uh, deal with the administrative functions in, in a safe manner, and take them to the treatment room uh, right away. So it's, it's, it's the very same thing as every other business will have to do that, uh, on the business end. The other story, of course, is what happens at the treatment end. Right. And that's, I think, what a lot of people are wondering about in that, uh, I mean, as it is now, going to the dentist, the dentist wears a a face mask. Is that going to change, do you think, in that dentists will be wearing shields or is that even possible? Um, The answer is yes. So so dentists for years have have, uh, followed fairly stringent infection control guidelines, including uh, personal protective equipment. In the past, that means uh, a, a surgical mask, uh, uh, means gloves, as well as some form of eye protection. 
Um, we know that uh, COVID-19 is transmitted uh, partly by, uh, by droplet formation, such as when somebody coughs or sneezes. And it's also possible to pick it, to get, get it through contact surface. So disinfection of contact surfaces is important. And what the BC Centers for Disease Control guidelines make utterly clear, and as is practiced in hospitals as well, uh, conventional um, uh, protective equipment, perhaps with the addition of a face shield or goggles rather than uh, regular safety glasses, um, is, 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 is okay in, in the environment of droplet uh, protection. So I can see perhaps uh, adding that we might add, uh, you know, add face shields because a lot of us wear magnifiers. We might add gowns to it because protect our, our uh, clothing and forearms and so on from droplets. But basically, surgical masks that we've always worn are fine for those basic um, interactions with patients where droplet transmission is the risk. Where things will get a little bit, a little bit different is when we start to pick up uh, the high-speed drill, which, as we know, causes aer- aerosols. And aerosols transmit as an airborne infection. So just like people in hospitals, that's when we have to have an enhanced mask on. Right, and that makes sense that when you're drilling and, and any and you, people have been in that situation, you, easy to see that, that there is that there's a mist almost. Um, dentists, I mean, people have always been encouraged to not go to the dentist if you're not feeling well. Do dentists traditionally have a higher, a, a higher rate of cold and flu? I don't believe so, and I certainly don't think there's any data out there to support that. And you're absolutely right. I mean, during every flu season, we, we, we remind dentists that they should be screening uh, their patients on the telephone, encouraging them not to come into the office if they have, if they have symptoms of respiratory tract infection. I mean, if you think about it, and somebody's coughing and spluttering and they've got a runny nose and they're stuffed up, the last thing they want to be is in a chair with a rubber dam on and somebody close by. I mean, it just doesn't make sense to have somebody in the dental chair when, the, when they're sick in that way. Uh, so when do you anticipate then, I know you're part of the, the task force working on this, when do you anticipate we might see dentist offices open again? Well, I, you know, that's, going, that's, that's compl- utterly dependent on the provincial health officer. And as you will recall, um, a couple of days ago, Dr. Bonnie Henry suggested that it might, and I think she stressed, might be possible to start relaxing this by mid-May. Maybe let's think realistically the end of May. Uh, and that's good. that has to be incremental, it has to be staged, and it can utterly depends on what the epidemiological data shows between now and then. And it is the provincial health officer's decision. Right. Uh, in the meantime, I understand there's an emergency dental line. Has that been working or do you know anything about that? Well, there are, um, there are a number of clinics around, uh, around the province that uh, have managed to equip themselves. Because, and by that I mean uh, they've managed to overcome the, the tremendous shortage of protective equipment that exists in, in the supply chain and are able to see patients for emergency procedures. Um, the, uh, the BC nurse line, or the, I can't remember what the current name for it is, but it's BC 811, has a very robust uh, set of questions and answers for people who have dental problems and can help anybody with, with a dental issue make a decision when and under what circumstances they need to actually go and have face-to-face help. All right. And, oh, sorry, go ahead. 
I think the important message here is if somebody does have an emergency, it does have a, 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 an acute infection problem, has significant pain, and they should be in touch with uh, their dental office or, or, or the dental office of their choice, talk to the staff there, and perhaps talk to the dentist, because a lot of these decisions, well, this advice can happen on the telephone. Thanks for being with us. Well, when we talk about essential services, you might not think about hunting and fishing, but under the Food and Agriculture Service Providers, hunting has been, well, both hunting and fishing have been added to that list of essential services in BC during the COVID-19 pandemic. So let's check in with the BC Wildlife Federation and Jesse Zeman with the BC Wildlife Federation joins us now. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me, Joe. Uh, I know you were advocating for this. Why was it important for you that hunting and fishing get on this list? For a number of people, the hunting and fishing piece, uh, you know, part of it is about uh, getting access to food. Uh, There's a big push socially for people to know where their food comes from. And, of course, uh, wild game and fish is organic. It's free range. We know where it comes from. We know it's sustainably and ethically sourced. So that's a big part of it. And we also know that when people go outside and enjoy the outdoors and do things like fishing and hunting, it uh, helps relieve a lot of stress and helps them kind of shed some of the anxiety associated with the COVID. Uh, what has changed, though, do you think, with COVID-19 and being responsible while doing those activities? There's quite a few things that have changed. Um, certainly, we've been messaging out to hunters and anglers and to the public that you know people need to plan ahead. We want them staying local. Um, we don't want them traveling or hunting and fishing with people who don't live inside of their house. So it's put a number of constraints on hunters and anglers, uh, very similar to it, to how it's uh, put constraints on the public. We're just trying to make sure that we're echoing um, what the provincial health officer has had to say and keeping our message consistent with what she's doing. Um, so some cities and municipalities, uh, Burnaby, uh, some other ones as well, have closed their boat launches as part of the closing of their civic facilities. With having fishing now listed as an essential service, do you anticipate will they have to reopen? I think there's yeah, there's a few challenges there, and uh, you know, regularly when the when the provincial health officer gives her updates, she's constantly telling people, you know, get outside. It's good for you. It's good for your mind. It's good for your body, and that's something that we're all well aware of. Part of the challenge is when the province closed all BC parks, uh, we put a whole bunch more pressure on municipal parks and municipal boat launches. And so, you know, I guess what the the bigger picture fear is that we're pushing more and more people as the weather warms up into fewer and fewer places. And I think that some of the municipalities have felt overwhelmed. Other municipalities are being innovative and creating one-way trails for people to hike on. I think that's where the province needs to start thinking about how it's going to add some capacity and resources to BC parks to help spread people out a little bit so that everybody can go out in their backyard safely and get to experience nature. Right, because on the one hand, if we're telling people don't travel too far, stay close to home, but the boat launch in your community is closed, but fishing has been deemed an essential service, that seems to be like everybody's not on the same page. Yeah, for sure. And that's where I think, you know, this is a, really about the province showing some initiative and leadership on it and dedicating some resources and, and kind of coming up with a plan on, you know, how do we open provincial parks and provincial boat launches to take some pressures off the municipality? How do we make sure that it's safe? How do we, never, you know, make sure that um, we aren't crowding people out? And I think that's where the province really needs to step up to the plate.
when we're talking, uh, we're talking about hunting as well, and the province has also put out some new guidelines because of COVID-19, uh, particularly when we're talking about the limited entry hunts, saying that they want people to stay close to home and to not travel uh, if they don't need to. But that too seems a little bit like uh, opposing forces because a lot of people, if you live in Metro Vancouver, you're not living close to somewhere where you would take part in a limited entry hunt. So are they suggesting then that people, if unless you live in those remote parts of the province, you shouldn't be doing it? Yeah, that's a really hard one. And, and the limited entry, by and large, those draws, the hunting opportunities are not going to be out till the fall. And so really what we're communicating, what the province is communicating is we don't know what the fall is going to look like. We don't know what kind of restrictions are going to be placed on the public or hunters. And they're saying, so play it safe. Um, it doesn't mean that that's the way it's going to go, but it is a challenge in the lower mainland in parts to get access to the outdoors. And so, you know, what we've been saying is stay local, plan. Um, a big part of this and a big part of the concern is we really don't want people moving around the province and especially showing up in small town BC from other parts, um, going to gas stations, staying at hotels, that sort of thing. So, you know, there's guidelines that the province has put out that are consistent with the uh, provincial health officer. And in parts of the province, it can be really hard for people to access um, the hunting piece. Uh, the fishing piece, of course, uh, is pretty broad in BC. And even for some of the hunting, um, there's some stuff close to the lower mainland as well. But it will be a challenge for sure. Especially since it doesn't appear to be something that's going to be enforced. At this point, hunters are being asked to only uh, apply for the hunts and to go hunting close to home. Uh, do, do you anticipate there are going to be many who say, well, I'm just going to pack everything with me. I'm going to either sleep in my vehicle. I'm not going to go to a hotel and I'm going to go do this anyway. I think I think there will be a bunch of people that do apply um, under the premise that they're hoping that things will get better and that hopefully well before the majority of the hunting season is up and running, that things have changed in BC. I think you're going to see a lot of people that are going to go, I'm going to spend the $6, hope that I get drawn and hope that things have changed by the fall. I think that's a big part of it. Um, in terms of the rest of it, I don't really know. And I mean, we'll keep on pushing out the message and then talking to the enforcement agency, talking to the conservation officer service. And I'm sure the, uh, the health officer will be monitoring what's going on in BC. And I guess what we're trying to say is stay within the guidelines, be responsible, stay close to home so that everyone can go out and enjoy things. We don't want a few people racking it for everyone else. Right, because the province has also said that uh, they'll be monitoring this. And, and even though it's not, it doesn't look like it's something that's going, there's no enforcement, but they're also saying there could be more severe restrictions down the road if needed. Yeah, absolutely. And that's what we want to avoid. Uh, BC is a pretty special place and we want to make sure that people can go out and kind of have this physical and mental health break and go out and enjoy the outdoors. And we just want to make sure that um, nobody, we don't have a few people that wreck it for everyone else. All right, Jesse, we'll leave it there. But thanks again for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you. Good afternoon. Earlier on in the program, we were chatting with the BC Wildlife Federation about the fact that hunting and fishing have been declared essential services in this province. My next guest, not overly pleased with that. Rebecca Bretter is an animal law lawyer with Bretter Law, and she joins me on the line now. Rebecca, great to have you back on the show. Hi, Jill. Thanks so much for having me. I know you've been tweeting about this and responding to this. So what is your response when you saw that uh, hunting and fishing declared essential services? Uh, I was absolutely... I'm trying to <laughs> to stay cool about this because I was, quite frankly, infuriated to see hunting listed as an essential service. Now, 
essential service, according to our own government, is defined as daily services essential to preserving life, health, public safety, and basic societal functioning. That is what the BC government says in essential services. Hunting for pleasure to kill an innocent animal taken from its habitat is not essential to survival. It caters to just some kind of twisted type of pleasure that I'll never understand. And of course, yes, this is my opinion. Personally, I think it is absolutely ethically and morally wrong to kill wildlife just for the so-called fun and pleasure of it. But what I find really infuriating about all of this is that the BC Wildlife Federation, which as a side note, should really be called the BC Hunting Wildlife Federation, because for those people who don't know, the BC Wildlife Federation is not an organization that truly and genuinely conserves wildlife. It is an organization that uh, that promotes hunting, as as we're seeing now. So, what I am, but again, this is my opinion, of course, and, and I realize that many would disagree with me. But what I find infuriating about this is that hunting for sport and for pleasure has been on the decline. There are fewer and fewer people wanting to engage in this so-called sport, and the BC Wildlife Federation is very well aware of that. So, what are they doing? They're using a a global pandemic as an excuse to kind of build up this panic about a lack of food shortage, which there isn't. And the government, our government has been very clear that we do not have to worry about food shortages in this province. Yet the BC Wildlife Federation is using COVID-19 as an excuse to lobby the government to now include hunting as an essential service when it is anything but an essential service. What would you say, though, and I'm not a hunter, but I know a lot of hunters, and they would argue that it's not just for pleasure and for fun, that it's actually a food source, that they are that they are responsible hunters. It's not like they're going out and killing any endangered species. They're responsible about it. They eat the meat that they kill, and that it's a legal practice, and it's something that they're allowed to do, and many people engage in it. It is a legal practice, and just because it's legal, first of all, it doesn't necessarily make it right. And we know very well that the law takes, unfortunately, a long time to catch up with societal values. But the bottom line is that the vast majority of sport hunters who say that, oh, well, I eat the meat and I go and I kill these animals, but I do eat the meat and I'm there to conserve wildlife. First of all, they don't need to go and eat the meat. These are the same individuals who go kill a deer from the forest, turn around, go to McDonald's and pick up a hamburger. So please don't tell me, Mr. Hunter or Mrs. Hunter, that you're doing this because you need the meat when you don't. When it comes to conservation, the whole conservation argument, the vast majority of time, the hunters are taking the healthiest animals. And that actually has a contrary effect to true conservation because you're making the genetic pool of wildlife weaker. And the definition of conservation is actually to conserve life. It's to protect life. It's not to take it away. So that in and of itself, the argument just doesn't and has never made sense to me. So do you think it should be shut down entirely? What about First Nations hunts? Yeah, so this, you know, I don't want to go into a whole, like, rabbit hole, so to speak. But First Nation issues and sport hunting issues are two very different issues. 
First Nations, yes, they do have a right to hunt. But that is very different than talking about the commercial sport hunting and the commercial trophy hunting industry. So I'm not telling First Nations don't go and hunt. They have the right to do that. But what I'm saying is that the commercial sport hunting and trophy hunting industry should ideally be completely shut down. But those are two different things, aren't they? Sport hunting and trophy hunting, I mean, we're talking about people in this scenario that are going out and are hunting. They're getting a tag for whatever animal it is, be it a deer or a bear. They're hunting it. They're they're consuming it. They're, they're doing what, what they do with it. How is that any different? Well, what what makes it different also, and especially at this time, is that we already know that the conservation officers, so by the way, the conservation officers are the ones who are are mandated by law to enforce hunting regulations and rules. They're the ones who are supposed to be monitoring whether the hunting is being done lawfully. And we know for a fact that the Conservation Office Service in British Columbia, and actually many parts across Canada, there are already really uh, strapped for uh, for money they they don't have enough people out there on the ground there just simply won't be and there isn't enough monitoring and enforcement of the rules and regulations already how on earth does the government think that by increasing the number of hunters out there now they'll be able to properly and genuinely enforce the rules and make sure that people are doing what they say they're doing. Because already we know it's a problem. And already we know that there's poaching that's going on very close. I mean, even in our suburban areas like Maple Ridge and Mission in those areas. And the, the fact of the matter is, and the bottom line, is that there isn't enough enforcement to begin with. This will only add to the problem. And let me just say one more thing, if I can, mm-hmm. is that what, what the other part that infuriates me about this is that there's already so much habitat destruction. There's already the forest fires that have been, it seems like, on the increase every year. All of this is having such a tremendous negative impact on wildlife that the last thing we need are more people going out there in the environment, in nature, and killing more wildlife without there being proper enforcement. And I'll just give a shout out to the Fur Bears, which is a really good organization in British Columbia that's doing some fantastic public education and advocacy work on this. I, I know that they're going to have more to say on this topic, and and it's just it, it's such an important issue that when people say that hunting is there for conservation and that we need hunters to preserve wildlife give me a break. If you really care about wildlife and conservation, leave them alone. All right, Rebecca, we'll have to leave it there. We're right out of time, but thanks for coming on the show. Thanks so much, Joel.